Hey everybody, it's Friday afternoon in Chinatown. I'm kind of sleepy uh, and not doing this as video because I look super sleepy. Uh, I was up last night for a couple of reasons. One being uh, that my husband, Dim Johnson, made an announcement that's been, that's been in the works for a little while and that he is going to shut the doors on Ristretto Roasters, uh, his coffee roasting company in Portland. In fact, there's been no cafes for, wow, I think the last one closed in April. It was in a big building, the Coin Tower in downtown Portland, which basically closed because of COVID. So there was no way to continue um, running the cafe. And, and at this point, he was kind of ready to pull up stakes. So he made that announcement last night on his website. The website is rrpdx.com. And I mention as much because there's a, there's a code up there that you can go and get your beans. He'll be roasting until December 15th. There's a 15% off code, uh, code, and I would love it if you did. The coffee is amazing, as some of you already know. Um, what some of you also know is that there was a little bit of a history um, with Ristretto, um, something that happened, it'll be two years ago next month, uh, in that some people got kind of mad at me, and, um, kind of directed their anger at at my husband's business and caused a whole bunch of stuff. I have written about this, I've done podcasts about this, TV stuff, and obviously I do a lot of writing about it. Now, also I do a lot of other writing because, you know, you don't want to just keep writing about the same thing. But I will say that some of the people I care the most about, actually, I think the best writers I know um, really do want to address the idea of cancel culture and why people do it and what's wrong with it. Other people think there are things right with it. There was a big article, I think, in the New York Times posted yesterday or the day before um, about it. We're all always talking about it. Uh, I don't think talking about it to be obsessive, but just, you know, taking instances of, you know, the latest author who's apologizing for something she never did or the latest business that's being um, set upon and trying to figure out why people are doing it, um, what causes them to do it, and uh, stay joyful throughout it, but also recognize the destruction. You know, it's a complicated question, and I think it's a question, so it's a question we've been asking all year and all last year, maybe 2021. Uh, we can be a little softer about all this stuff and going on go in a direction that's that's kinder. Anyway, um, uh, there's been a lot of writing I've done that I've never published for a couple of reasons. Sometimes I actually even forget that I write these things. Um, but also my husband is a private person and he certainly had more exposure than he would have liked through all of this. Um, but now that, that the doors are closing, I thought I would read a little bit about Yes, certainly about um, our situation, but also kind of how you get there. Like maybe this is a little bit of a little bit of gives you a little bit of a story arc, um, and uh, you can just hear a little bit about it from the inside. I hope not too caustic. I hope in a way that's um, informative. Okay, there's a couple parts, and I'm gonna open it with some some quotes, not from me. Okay, part one. What is the right answer to the person who demands something because he is offended? Just this. 
Too bad, but you'll live. Jonathan Rausch, Kindly Inquisitors. You are scum. Rot in hell, you dirty bitch. Message sent to me by some random dude on Facebook. In August 2018, I wrote about Aja Argento. The Italian actress and director had been in the news since the previous October, when it was revealed that Harvey Weinstein had forcibly performed oral sex on her in a French hotel room in 1997. With another of Weinstein's accusers, actress Rose McGowan, Argento had become one of the most visible faces of the Me Too movement. That she admitted to having an on-off consensual sexual relationship with Weinstein for many years after the initial encounter did not strike me as confusing. Hollywood is a place of gross and subtle exchanges. I considered Argento a grown woman with the capacity to make good and bad decisions, as having the agency to decide her future regardless of her past. I recount here, too, what my teenage daughter said about a politician caught equivocating about a liaison with an underage intern. I expect people to lie about their sex lives. In August 2018, Argento was lying about her sex life. Five years earlier, at age 37, she'd had sex with Jimmy Bennett, an actor she'd directed in a film when he was seven years old. He was 17 when they had sex in a hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Marina del Rey, an encounter Bennett claimed Argento instigated. Bennett began threatening to expose the incident and to sue Argento just after she became associated with the Me Too movement. It is not difficult to see Bennett choosing his moment to strike, to believe that he appreciated how hard it would be for the actress to defend against an accusation of predatory behavior concurrent to being heralded for fighting it. Argento's boyfriend, Anthony Bourdain, whom she'd met while filming an episode of Bourdain's CNN show Parts Unknown, had already paid Bennett 250000 of a promised $380,000 to keep quiet. In June 2018, Bourdain hung himself in a French hotel room. Bennett went public about the encounter with Argento soon after. She immediately denied it. As for the money Bourdain paid Bennett, Argento claimed he'd done so out of compassion for the young actor to help his flagging career. Days later, when decidedly postcoital photos of Argento and Bennett from the 2013 encounter appeared online, Argento went to ground. At the time, I could see Argento thinking she might control the narrative. She was famous and Bennett was not. Sympathy had been firmly on her side as far as the Weinstein allegations went. She'd been the recipient, as I wrote for Reason.com, of an outpouring of sympathy and support, including from Rose McGowan, whom Argento, in her grief over Bourdain's death, had asked to be her spokesperson. I got to know Aja Argento 10 months ago. Our commonality is the shared pain of being assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. My heart is broken, McGowan wrote on Twitter, and two days later, when the Bennett accusations hit, none of us know the truth of the situation, and I'm sure more will be revealed. Be gentle. Coming off almost a year of plaudits for exposing and surviving Weinstein, McGowan might have expected Argento to be handled with care, that her recent tragedy would turn what looked like a case of statutory rape into something about which we might dissemble, might see our way toward looking past. This turned out not to be the case, or not only the case. Actress Mira Sorvino, another of Weinstein's alleged victims, tweeted, Child sexual assault is a heinous crime and is against all that I and the Me Too movement stands for. An editor at The Cut wrote of Argento denying the allegations, I feel like screaming. This doesn't mean all, rape, all rape accusations are fake. 
Barry Weiss opened a New York Times opinion piece about women in agency. Women are hypocrites. Women are opportunists. Women are liars. They are abusers and bullies and manipulators. They are capable of cruelty, callousness, and evil, just like men. Argento had become a flashpoint, both confirming and knocking down current ideas of progress and justice. Was she a liability to Me Too or deserving of support? Was Bennett a victim or a perpetrator? What about Argento? Was it possible, in a climate that preferred its stories in black and white, to see each as capable of being both? I did see them this way. I looked at the post-coital glow on Bennett's face in the hotel room shot and thought, the kid probably could have walked away, not much worse for wear, but chose not to. I read texts Argento sent a friend after the exposure, saying the encounter had occurred in part because she'd always felt bad for this Hollywood failed child, a casualty of the machine. I remembered interviewing Argento at the 2003 rap party for the film she'd made with Bennett, who at said party was eight years old and lolling unsupervised on a hotel room bed with singer Marilyn Manson and finding her to be a ready participant in a number of demimonde scams the public at the time forgave her for. We were, in 2018, no longer in a forgiving mood, and Argento was a case study in what we wanted now. She provided a schadenfreude hit for those who had a taste for that. If she'd become a liability to me too, she could be quietly or, and not so quietly jettisoned. Oh, for fuck's sake, I'm not defending, tweeted McGowan the day after she'd come to Argento's defense. What unfolded in the wake of Bourdain's death was a display of chronic predatory narcissism from Argento and McGowan, Lee McSweeney wrote for Penthouse. These two women have used and abused the Me Too movement, which they have been at the front lines of since the beginning for their own personal gain. I had written in this vein for reason and so began to text with Leah, texts that turned into multi-part threads and in December 2018 into the YouTube series, Hashtag Me Neither Show, whose tagline was an almost weekly conversation about the cultural issues of the day and an attempt to create a space where people can find ways to think out loud through uncomfortable topics. In the half hour episodes, Leah and I discussed how those who exaggerated or fabricated claims of abuse did a disservice to actual victims of sexual assault and the Me Too movement in general. We talked about the anti-Semitism among then leaders of the Women's March. We talked about our own experiences with sexual assault and in the context of the Christine Blasey Ford, Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, how we had not let those experiences define the rest of our lives. We shot the show in split screen, the sound quality was shit, and in the three episodes that it aired by early January 2019, the videos had been viewed about 5,000 times. Small potatoes. Until a former manager at my husband's coffee roasting company, a woman who'd been unhappy at her job and quit five months earlier, sent an email to current and former staff characterizing the views expressed on the series as vile, dangerous, and extremely misguided. The employee, who I'll call Joan, also sent an email to the media stating that my opinions threw into question the safety of Ristretto Roasters as a workplace and, by extension, the well-being of the community. The content this contention could be seen as alarmist or a head-scratcher or based on a history whose origins Joan did not deem useful to disclose. The press in Portland saw it as none of these. They were interested in seeing Joan as someone who stood up for women, someone whose sense of justice was so finely calibrated she could sense danger where others could not. They saw Joan as brave, 
which would turn out to be the title of Rose McGowan's memoir later that year. Women and bravery were having a moment, or rather, women who identified as victims fighting back were. Not so much women like Leah and me, who rooted around in the messier and less clear-cut stories of Me Too, who did not see women as axiomatically heroic simply because they had a vagina. Given people's preferences for simple narratives, Joan became a hero, I a villain, deserving whatever powers I possessed to be taken away. But there was a problem. I was a freelance journalist working nationally with a new book out that was selling well. People could tweet hate me and send nasty emails and overrun my Instagram and give me the stink eye at the bank, but the invective had little visible effect and no impact on my career. The same could not be said for my husband, who was repeatedly warned to leave his wife or lose his business. Staff quit, customers became uneasy, and after Joan and a concert of others called all the wholesale accounts and vendors and told them to cut their ties with the business or face a similar boycott, most of them fled. I watched my husband, a quiet, stoic man, lose the company he'd built literally with his hands, watched it sink into insolvency. The downfall was my fault, and it wasn't. It was an extremely difficult, an extremely difficult time, made more complicated, if in some ways more grounding, by having my daughter's dad living with us as he went through the final stages of terminal lung cancer, and my daughter home, understandably anxious and very, very sad. While there was a lot of opportunity to fall apart, under no circumstances was I going to see my family atomized by an ex-employee who well knew that she could have come to me had she been angry or scared or wanted to explain to me why someone she had known for five years was suddenly so dangerous. But she hadn't. Figuring out why was not difficult. An adult interested in discourse makes an overture, sends a message, invites the opposing party for a drink. I did each of these. I also invited Joan onto the podcast, where her opinion might reach a wider audience. With all the publicity, the podcast had gained about 50,000 listeners. Joan chose not to respond to this either. Her position appeared to be that she'd exposed me as someone whose opinions traumatized women and thus her work was done. As for what Joan would like to see happen now, one reporter wrote, she says if Ristretto takes a financial hit, or even if they go out of business, that's not her concern anymore. If it happens, Joan said, it would just be a result of their actions, and at the least the people who support them will know the truth. I might have expected Joan, at 31, to understand that there is no such thing as the truth, that only ideologues and children demand the world be seen in this way. At the height of the Ristretto Maelstrom, the tactics did strike me as childlike. A college girl staging a tantrum in one of the cafes. A dude with Princess Leia buns telling employees they were working in an unsafe space. One of the baristas writing firewood on the book I'd just written and hiding it under the espresso machine. At one point, I half expected some young person to take a dump on one of the cafe tables. Part 2 they mistook my kindness for weakness. I fucked up, I know that, but Jesus, can a girl just do the best she can? Lana Del Rey, Mariner's Apartment Complex. You didn't destroy his life, Katie Herzog told me. Joan did. Herzog, a staff writer for, at The Stranger, had been one of the few journalists to write about what happened to my husband and me with objectivity. She'd also known Joan for 15 years and saw her actions as part of a pattern. Herzog herself, on a scale I had not come close to experiencing, had been targeted for hate and cancellation, 
stemming from a 2017 article she wrote about transgendered youth who'd undergone sex reassignment and later decided to detransition and go back to the sex they were born with. If you thought a nuanced piece about such a sensitive subject would earn Herzog praise, you've not been exposed to the stunning vituperation from certain trans activists who, at the suggestion that there are biological differences between the sexes, will claim that such an opinion puts all trans people in immediate jeopardy of being murdered and, for good measure, that they're going to cut off your mother's head and shit down her neck. Two years on, and the Herzog hate was daily and nonstop. People pasted, Katie Herzog is a transphobe, a Jordan Peterson apologist, anti-left stickers on news boxes holding the stranger and sent her emails with the subject line, the stranger is also a neo-Nazi publication, you balding dumb fucking idiot. A message Herzog posted on Twitter with the comment, am I balding? Why didn't anyone tell me until now? The girl was legit funny and tough. Sitting at the lunch counter of a diner near, near the Seattle train station, she looked like she might weigh 110 pounds soaking wet, and I'd have bet she cried pretty easily at the things worth crying about, but she did not back down from the petty attacks. She joked through them and wrote through them and kept putting superb work into the world, doing more than her part to freight journalism with fact in an ever more partisan and self-censuring journalistic landscape. I'd taken the train from Portland to Seattle to meet Herzog, and though we were slated to talk about a new media project I was forming, one I wanted her to be part of, we instead were immediately talking cancel culture and the stories people came to us with. The poet laureate in California, the politician in Ottawa, people who were well-known and those unknown outside their circles until they'd been accused of racism, sexism, sexual assault, cultural appropriation, and or transphobia. The accusations, it seemed to us, were designed to hit the accused exactly where it hurt. Of course they were. If I had, if someone had accused me of not being good at, say, throwing a javelin, I'd say, you're right, the end. An accusation has to have the whiff of possible truth, has to fall in the wheelhouse of what the person cares about in order to gain traction, such as Professor Brett Weinstein at Evergreen State College the year before having been accused of racism. Katie and I each knew Brett. We knew his wife, Heather Hying, who'd been one of the first people to reach out during the Ristretto imbroglio. I had not previously known Heather, but she'd been where I was, she said in an email, and wanted to offer her hand. Also, a view to what was going to happen next, which was a disquieting quiet, not from those on the attack, but from your friends, a few of whom would come to your defense publicly, a few more privately, the bulk of whom would sit on the fence, waiting to see which way the wind blew. People will really show you who they are, she told me, and this turned out to be exactly true. And while it showed us how few fr real friends we had, it also brought new ones, people who stepped up in ways that, more than a year later, have the power to bring me to tears. My friend Barry Weiss in New York, who texted as I sat shell-shocked from the first press barrage in the hospital as my ex received chemo. What can I do? A guy I knew only from Twitter, Ben Price, who started driving up from Corvallis every other weekend with a bottle of bourbon for din. The editor in Seattle, who tentatively asked, you okay? And then began throwing work my way. They and a few others saved my family and me from succumbing fully to despondency. But I'd also lost friends, including a good friend, who wanted to know, who could not understand why I had risked so much to express opinions that could get me in trouble. I told her that, contrary to evidence, I did not see having conversations as inherently risky, and if they were, 
it was more the reason to have them. Besides my girlfriend and my neighbor, I don't have friends, Katie told me that day at lunch, a consequence of reporting the truth as best she could. She'd had people tell her the hardest thing that they'd been through, which, even you if you disagreed with the politics, and if for no other reason than to respect the choices of these young, these young people had made, you'd see as a generous story to try to bring forth, and a tender one. Instead, the internet disgorged hate on Katie and continued to disgorge it. Magnanimity and the mob, it seemed, did not go hand in hand. Okay, that's it for now for the recording. Um, but I also wanted to say, actually, um, that magnanimity and the mob can go hand in hand because also uh, all the good stuff that people bring, for instance. Um, since uh, saying last night that he was closing up shop, um, the outpouring of not only orders of coffee, which is fantastic and helpful, of course, um, but the notes that he's getting are amazing. Um, I mean, really, really, really super touching to see. So uh, if you want to go grab some coffee beans, please do. I invite you to. That's rrpdx.com. Um, the stuff is really wonderful. And I thank you guys very much for listening. See you soon.